I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem. Just over two months ago, we were honoured and privileged to be joined on the Koran podcast by Rabbi Lord Sachs, who shared thoughts, Torah and words of inspiration with us before Rosh Hashanah. We are still coming to terms with the fact that we are now marking the Shloshim since his passing almost a month ago from the time of recording. On this special episode, we felt it apt to bring together four members of the Koran team to reflect in conversation together on Rabbi Sachs's life and legacy and his partnership with Corin over the past 13 years. We were joined by Corin's publisher, Matthew Miller, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, editor-in-chief of the Noe edition Corin Talmud Bavli, and translator together with Rabbi Sachs on the forthcoming new edition of the Corin Tanakh, Jessica Sachs, who worked together with Rav Weinreb and Rabbi Sachs on the forthcoming translation, as well as on Rabbi Sachs's Siddur translation, and Dr. Daniel Rose, director of the Koren Magman Educational Sidurian Project, as well as other educational projects from the office of Rabbi Sachs. I suppose the difficult task of uh, starting this week's episode falls to me, so I just want to begin by thanking you all for joining us. Um, we couldn't think of a, a better group of people who uh, could help us reflect on the life and work of Rabbi Sachs, especially his relationship uh, with Koren um, and, and what that's done uh, in the world at large. Um, so we'll get going uh, with our first question and, and we'll see where the discussion takes us. Um, Matthew, uh, could you just start us off um, and tell us a little bit about how you first came to meet Rabbi Sachs um, and how the relationship between uh, Corin and Rabbi Sachs came about? Um, sure. Um, you may know that I lived in England for about 20 years before making Aliyah. Um, and I got to know Rabbi Sachs. London's a small town. It's a small Jewish town. Um, and then we made Aliyah. And I had started a small publishing company as a second career. Um, and about 2000, after about five years, I the United Synagogue had come out with the uh, Rabbi Sachs' edition of the Sidur. And I heard that he was looking to actually publish this outside the United Kingdom. And I took a look at it. I thought it was incredibly good. Around the same time, um, I had come across a small company, Koren. It had three employees. Um, it was it had its own history. It was the um, it was the publisher of the first Jewish Jewishly edited Tanakh in over four hundred years. That's a whole story by itself. I won't won't go uh, into it now. But the the values of Koren was was something that I always was intrigued and fascinated by it pushed all the buttons it was um textually and academically uh of the highest order um it designed it, it had a sp- very specific sense of design the late mr koran even designed his own typefaces for this tanakh which uh, rav medan's father um had edited throughout the 1950s and it was Zionist. It was the um, 
the official sidur of the state of the quasi official sidur of the state of uh, quasi official Tanakh of the state of Israel. Uh, all people entering the army received a copy. High school students received a copy, um, and those those three values were very much my values. And when I heard that Rabbi Sachs was looking to publish, I thought this could be an interesting. An, an interesting shidduch between ourselves and Rabbi Sachs, who I know shared those values, um, but brought his own his own uh, set of values to the table, which were entirely complementary. Uh, his engagement with the outside world, his um, concept of the duality of both the universalism and the particularism of Judaism, and his, his moral codes, all of this worked really well together. Um, so effectively, in, in a crazy way, I, I acquired Koren to publish Rabbi Sachs's works. Uh, the first one, of course, was the Koren Sachsidur, which came out in 2009. We'd worked on it for about two or so years. Um, we brought that out. It was very successful. Uh, hundreds of thousands are in circulation now. Uh, expressing all those values that I mentioned. Um, then there was clearly a demand for Machserim, and we spent the next six or eight years working on the entire Machser sets in, in various Nisachim. And um, we started, uh, we actually approached him if we could publish the Covenant and Conversation series in book form because we knew um, that as, as brilliant as they are a Parsha sheet, a podcast, a, um, um, a, a, an online share. They're important, but they're all utterly ephemeral. And to put these in book form, I think, was very important. We did that. Uh, there's nine volumes out now. Um, we introduced him into Hebrew. You know, there's two of the two. You know, the English-speaking Jewish population, the Hebrew-speaking population, that's 90% of Jews. And we spent about six, seven years working very, very hard uh, on introducing his writing into Israel. It was very much an uphill battle. But now he's about the only foreign writer that is respected by uh, the huge mass of uh, Orthodox and observant Jews and non-observant Jews. So I think that's a that's an achievement. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, Alex, but it was a natural shidduch. Um, and I mean, obviously, the I guess the like you said, the first part of that relationship was the siddur. Um, Rav Weiner, you wrote the forward to the siddur, I think, back in two thousand and nine. Um, just wondering what you think is maybe what you thought at the time, what you've seen since in terms of what's unique about the Koran Sak siddur. And maybe what you've seen from America in terms of how it's impacted on on North American Jewry. Okay, uh, my connection with Rabbi Sachs uh, preceded uh, that particular connection, um, but I think that that uh, forward that I wrote to the Sidur in English um, was part of the beginning of a relationship between two of of the. Uh, institutions that I'm affiliated with, Koran and the Orthodox Union in the United States. Uh, at that point in time, I was the executive vice president of the OU, 
Um, and we were really just beginning the project of the OU Press. Uh, we've done now a number of things together with uh, Corin. Uh, but that was really my introduction to Corin and to Matthew, I guess, was just around that time too. Um, but we felt for a long time, uh, the Orthodox Union really speaks for quite a few hundred uh, Orthodox synagogues in the United States and Canada. And uh, in spite of the fact that there were plenty of translations of the Siddur out there, um, various, uh, um, should I say, subgroups of the Orthodox world, uh, but we felt that none of each of them had a fault. I'm not going to review the faults that we found in the others. Some were a bit archaic, uh, some were rather narrow in their hashkafa, uh, some were maybe too broad in their hashkafa. And um, then this, the opportunity came along for a new translation with the commentary from Rabbi Sachs. And uh, I remember clearly the meeting that several of us on the executive committee or whatever um, had, uh, that he was really not only the perfect um, person to produce the sitter from our perspective, I'm speaking now as the OU executive, um, uh, not only the perfect person, but the only person that we could imagine in the entire world. Uh, you know, we're here to commemorate his shloshim, and uh, we really feel that loss right now. In many, many ways, they were, they was, he's incomparable, irreplaceable. And we felt that then. This is now 11, 12 years ago. Um, he was the person who could speak really to, to our entire constituency, left to right, old to young, male to female, better educated, less educated. Uh, his voice could do that. Uh, and uh, I still have it, you know, right here my next to my desks at all times. Whenever I need a quote from the Sidur, and there are certainly ample uh, uh, alternatives, uh, but I turn to his, uh, his translation all the time. He's always exactly on the mark. And his commentary, besides all of its other merits, has the merit of brevity. It doesn't go on and on. Uh, you often people use it as their davening. They don't sit and study it as a separate study, usually. As their davening, they may come across a phrase and wonder just what it means, etc. They glance down, uh, pick up a sentence or two, and it not only changes their intellectual experience, it changes their spiritual experience. Uh, so I'm proud to have written that forward. Um, and uh, that kind of intensified, took some steps further, my own personal relationship with Rabbi Lord Sachs. I was wondering, you know, without taking anything away from his genius, which, I mean, if you, every time I had a meeting with him, it turned into a shiur. Um, you just couldn't ask a simple question and get a quick, you, you've got an incredibly deep um, answer. So without taking away, which, which, which would show you new perspectives on things you hadn't even thought of. Um, but the fact that he wasn't American, do you think that helped the Saxidor in America? You know, he wasn't a part of any tribe. Uh, I, I think, well, I think he, from the American perspective, he transcended, uh, the tribes, um, partly mm. because, um, there's kind of an aura in America, believe it or not, toward people who speak the English language with a British accent. <laughs> Somehow they sound better educated. 
you know, they mispronounce words in a very interesting way from our, from our American perspective. Um, but there's no question about it. As, as you know, I mean, we were a fractured society uh, in the United States jury in terms of orthodoxy, uh, the, the shades of, uh, of gray from black to white are, are many. And he just transcended that. And he, his voice, his writings just transcends all of those peculiar shtick. And um, for sure, that, that helped. That obviously helped, helped the sales. Um, almost all the other translations that were out there then, and there are more now, seem to be identified to some extent with one or another place on the spectrum. And he was above the spectrum uh, and, uh, and remained so. Uh, for that matter, uh, I've met Gentiles who, um, either uh, uh, clergy and other religions or whatever, uh, who have a need for a translation of the Jewish prayer book for academic reasons, for their own preaching, whatever. And, and th that seems to be, in my experience, with the, some dozen that I've met, that's the city they go to uh, because it's uh, Rabbi Sachs' translation. It's interesting that he was also in the UK, not just the chief rabbi, but he was the official, no, not official, he was the go-to for any commentary on any religion, um, whether it's thought for the day or 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 other outlets. He, he, was, he filled a need in the society in the UK that no other Christian or other cleric could fill. Quite, it's quite astounding. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a, as you all know, there's a, a, a prophetic ideal of uh, the Jewish people should be or goyim should be a light to the nations, and uh, obviously we've fallen short in many ways of being a light to the nation. But as a nation, we have our faults, and our spiritual leaders throughout the generations had their limitations. They didn't speak to other nations sometimes literally didn't speak to them, but certainly couldn't influence them, couldn't interest them. Rabbi Sachs was able to do it in, a, in an amazing way. I, um, if I may, I, I, I want to say a, a drop about how I met personally, how I first met uh, Rabbi Sachs face to face. It was sometime before 2009, probably around 2003 or four, that I was a, a scholar in residence for the United Synagogue of the United Kingdom in Bournemouth, England. Uh, we had like a midweek, midwinter conference of about 50 uh, or so rabbis. Um, and uh, Rabbi Sachs was there. Uh, as the scholar in residence, I had to give various lectures and talks and seminars, etc., to that group, which was a, a tough challenge. This was a very advanced group, very knowledgeable group, very rabbinic group, and therefore very critical group. Um, so I was a bit, uh, a bit nervous. And then Rabbi Sachs came a bit late for some reason to that uh, particular conference. But when he joined the audience, that made the challenge uh, to me even that much more scary. Um, but he came over to me at dinner that I think it was the second night of the conference and asked me if I was up for a stroll after dinner. So of course I said yes. And we strolled along the promenade or whatever near the waterfront of Bournemouth. Uh, the dinner broke up quite late, maybe as late as 11 p.m. And when we started strolling, we started talking about everything under the sun. 
We spoke about marriage and our own personal marriages. We spoke about our favorite uh, books, secular and sacred. Uh, we spoke about uh, those individuals who are an influence upon each of us. He spoke at some length uh, that the night about uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, encouraged me to speak about my very limited uh, exposure, direct exposure to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And, and we spoke about from that leadership of what it meant to be a leader. Uh, that stroll ended uh, when <laughs> we felt Rabbi Oseinu Higiyazman Kriyashma Shel Shacharis. It was already very close to dawn. It was still dark, but it was very close to sunrise uh, when that stroll ended. And that conversation, although it was that, those few hours, it was very special. And it remained the springboard for every other time subsequently that I, that we met each other at conferences or here and there. We would always go back to that evening, which he described in poetic terms, you know, walking along the seashore and tasting the spray of salt in our lips, et cetera, et cetera, and his masterful command of the English language. Uh, that was pre-Koran, and uh, our connection intensified because of our joint um, affiliation with Koran, especially in the uh, translation that he did most recently of the five uh, Chumashim, which he translated and which uh, Jessica Sachs edited, and I kind of consulted with her here and there uh, when we had some thorny but fascinating issues to resolve about his his exquisite writing. I want to throw it to Jessica shortly because I want we want to hear so much more about the translation, not just of the Siddur, which I know Jessica worked on uh, as well, and the Chumash. Um, but we've we've mentioned the translation. Rabbi Rab Weinreb, you mentioned how Rabbi Sachs was sort of the only person who could have uh, created the Siddur that has become, you know, a, a favorite the world over. Um, but if I could just very quickly ask, ask Daniel. Um, you know, someone who was aware of Rabbi Sachs, who, you know, had learned from Rabbi Sachs in the UK, uh, where uh, many of us uh, recording this evening are from, um, and then coming here to Israel as an educator, and then going over to, uh, you're in Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken, um, in America. Um, and, you know, what, what was the impact um, that Rabbi Sachs had that you saw? Uh, either through the Siddur or through you know his other his other his other books his other writings or just generally his his personality. What was the impact that you saw and continue to see in, in your role as as an educator, specifically in tefillah education and and your role as the editor of the uh, current educational Siddur series? So we uh, between two thousand and ten two thousand and twelve together with my family we were on on Shichut in Atlanta Georgia, uh, which was a wonderful experience and really wonderful people there. I, in my mind, I had a certain kind of uh, list of goals, what I wanted to achieve when I was there. And and honestly, and, and you can ask my wife for, for confirmation of this, one of those goals was I want to expose that community, whatever friends we make, whatever students I teach, to, to, the, to the world of Rabbi Sachs. I, I felt like, you know, I grew up um, at just the right time in London, in England, uh, when I was, uh, you know, I returned from Yeshiva in 1994, um, and, she, and Rabbi Sachs had become chief rabbi in 1991. Um, so I was, you know, the, I was a young man who was, you know, passionate about Judaism, but looking for for voices that uh, that 
that represented the Judaism that I was passionate about. And here was Rabbi Sachs saying it in, in, in the eloquence that only he could. And, and we all had tremendous access to him as well. He, he was in the Bnei Kiva Bayit regularly. He would always be the keynote speaker at Yom Atzma'ut for the Bnei Kiva and Mizrahi uh, uh, celebration. We, we were very blessed to have access to him. And, and, and arriving in Atlanta, I very much wanted to, you know, bring him with me, kind of. Anyway, I got there almost immediately it became clear to me that he was a rock star. He they knew all about him. I mean, the community we were in, the Young Israel of Tokyo Hills, as it was then, uh, they were bigger Corin fans. They had already purchased the Corin Sidor. Before my relationship with Corin started, they were already uh, um, uh, fully fully bedded in with Corin. But they brought him over. Within three months, he came over. And, it, you know, it was like witnessing a, 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 a pop star come to the community and, and, and across the community as well. The community is very broad there. Um, there are many, many... Uh, uh, People who are, we would not call necessarily orthodox in a normative sense, but uh, are very much affiliated with the community. And he spoke to them as much as he spoke to the Kollel that was there. Um, and it was just, it was amazing. He did me a tremendous disservice because as you said, Rabbi Weintraub, when I got there, people were like, wow, you sound intelligent just from the accent. Now the, the Brits on this call, including Matthew, who lived in England for a long time, know that that is just not true. All they have is an accent. We so, you know, know better. Exactly. So, you know, they really thought I was, uh, you know, intelligent and eloquent. And uh, and then Rabbi Sachs arrived and then they realized I just had an accent. Rabbi Sachs was intelligent and eloquent. So that was the end of my of the facade. But it was wonderful to see how he touched uh, uh, the community there. Um, really, it was a privilege to see. Um, in terms of his role in, 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 in the Siddur, in the series of, of educational Siddurim that, that we produced, the Magaman um, um, Siddurim, I, I find it difficult to say anything intelligent or otherwise about Judaism without using his words. That was me before I started working on the Siddurim. So it was very obvious to me, the first thing I did was sit down and read his magnificent essay, Introduction to the Koran Sachs Siddur, um, to get inspiration for what, what our Siddur could look like. Um, and I think his, his uh, influence is on every page of that Siddur. Many of the pages have literal quotes from him. In fact, I had to had to rein in. I could have put him on every page. I was, uh, you know, I had to really uh, push myself to find other quotes uh, to say the same thing when I knew that he said it, you know, uh, um, perhaps more eloquently. Um, but the whole structure of the Siddur, and I actually, I just want to share very quickly, uh, he was a tremendous role model for me in terms of tefillah. Uh, I think that I heard uh, there was a, um, a podcast that, that was recent, just now released. It had never been released before. It was an interview with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg um, from Boca. Um, who had, it was like a 20-minute interview, unscripted, unprepared. He just hopped Rabbi Sachs and said, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. Um, uh, can I interview you? And uh, Rabbi Sachs said, sure. And it, for some reason, he never aired it. And in it, one of the things they talk about is tefillah. And Rabbi Goldberg asked him... Um, uh, what's your approach to tefillah? How do you make tefillah meaningful every day? And, and his response was tefillah for him is Jewish CBT, Jewish Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, which basically means you make, and Rabbi Sachs has used this phrase many times, uh, fake it till you make it. We do it every day, three times a day. We, we, we say, we go through the motions, even if we're not feeling it. And that's how we end up feeling it. And for me, as someone who struggles with finding spirituality every day, that was tremendous, well, you know, uh, it was tremendous, uh, has a tremendous impact on me. But at the same time, Rabbi Sachs was someone that pushed uh, uh, pushed spirituality whenever he could, his connection to music, 
the Shabbaton Choir and, and the Chazanim that are all dear to all of us, uh, Shim Kramer and Johnny Turgel and Lionel Rosenfeld, his, his very close friend, and, and his relationship there. And that was a whole other aspect of tefillah. And then there was the very intellectual philosophical aspect that was really how I connected to him. And those are three completely different approaches to tefillah that he made sure that he presented and that he engaged in. And, uh, and I, I, that for me was, was, was a model to how I wanted our Siddharim to look. There would be something for everyone. Some kids will find the singing will be impactful. And some kids want a story. And some kids want uh, like an intellectual thought. And we try to provide everything on every page. So, so I, I really believe that his influence was on every page of all those Siddharim that we produced. Um, and Rav Warren, you mentioned before in terms of the translation, obviously the translation of the Siddha, um, but also the Tanakh translation you've been working on with Jessica. So to bring Jessica in now, uh, maybe you want to tell us, Jessica, a bit about how you became involved with uh, Rabbi Sachs' translation projects um, and how, you know, how do Rabbi Sachs' views and vision of the translations come through in the work that you did with him? Well, my story is quite different from the stories that have been told so far because I, uh, he knew me before I knew him in the sense that he's, he, he was my uncle. Um, and so... I always grew up with, you know, before he was chief rabbi as well. He was certainly a very uh, rabbinic figure in the family. And growing up, it's it's always, you know, wherever I've gone, always, you know, when it, when people have heard my name, the first question has been, are you related to? Um, when I was uh, about 17, um, I, I won a short story competition at school. It was a national competition. It was a nice thing. And it was a... It was a, it was quite a Jewish story, not an, not explicitly, but I think you know, reading it, we would we would we would all recognise it as as quite a Jewish story, and I, I I was obviously very excited about this, and my you know my parents told my grandmother, and my grandmother was very proud of this, as you know any any bubba would be, um, and a couple of days later, which was not expected, I I. Uh, there was a phone call and my, my uncle was calling, uh, which was, you know, again, he was, he was not, you know, the birthday cards were my auntie Elaine. He was not, uh, not an uncle who just calls you up for a chat. Um, and he said, Jessica, I read your story. You know, my grandmother had passed it on. Um, and it's, and it's very special and you've got to keep writing. And, you know, as a teenager, you know, now I'm hearing, so many similar stories you know as a teenager to have somebody who you look up to to that extent you know recognizing your dream and and telling you go and do this not not just for you but because it's important and it can it can be a contribution you know it's very very um empowering thing that stayed with me obviously until now and that became um that became the thing that he would um, that he would talk to me about when we would, you know, meet at a bar mitzvah or a wedding or whatever it would be. It would be you know, he he would talk to me about this uh, the need that he felt for more Jewish writing, for more writing literature that's sort of uh, in dialogue with the sources. That was something that he talked to me about, and I. I carried on loving writing and and I began to uh, have this desire to translate um, and he would talk to me about that 
And around the time we was doing this Siddur in England, um, there were projects related to that and other things that he started to send me. You know, he started to send me, you know, translation of Alim Smirat and say, could you look this over? Do you have any uh, suggestions on this? You know, I was very... I was very flattered by this and I was and I would look and I would and I would think and I would write carefully and what I wrote was of no help to him whatsoever because um he would always write back very nicely he would say what you what what you wrote was absolutely right and absolutely uh, excellent but uh, but you know it's not you know I I I interpret a 25-year-old girl and a chief rabbi have quite different voices and quite different um, uh, perspectives on things and priorities. And uh, so, you know, I would always say, okay, well, I, 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 I did what I could and that's that. And then he would come back with something else. And I, and I thought, wow, this is, this is a man of great faith. You know, he... Um, and you know, the day came when he was already, um, he was already working with Corin and he said, Jessica, will you translate the five Megillot? And, you know, this is, I think for any, for any translator who, who loves Hebrew, that is the, you know, that is a dream job. That's not, uh, that's not a small thing. And I said, obviously I would love to do this, but I'm not going to, I don't think that I'm going to be able to produce what you need, um, and uh, so I did a sample chapter, and he, you know, he he made a change here and there. You know, he would always make changes that were sort of rabbinic requirements, should we say, sort of uh, matters of hashkafa here and there, one or two, but he very much. Um, the fact that my voice was not his voice was not uh, was not an issue for him. He was all encouragement, just encouragement, um, and that's how I started at Corin. And I I entered with absolutely crippling sense that I am only here <laughs> because I'm the niece of, and Matthew is taking a ridiculous risk on me because that's uh, rubbish. That's rubbish. Um, sorry. <laughs> Jessica, that's rubbish. Uh, you're gifted <laughs> writers, I know. You have that stack. It took gene. about seven years gene. for me to. <laughs> it took about seven years for me to get beyond that feeling. But I, I think it was partly because I, I was a niece of that I had that feeling, and partly I think that's a feeling that, um, that, I mean, I, I hope that this is something that characterizes my age group and that. In the future, it won't be like this, and perhaps for younger women, it's not like this. But I think a, a religious woman coming into that kind of bet midrash setting—you know—we call the room in the office where we who work on the texts themselves sit. We call that the bet midrash. And for a woman, I wasn't the only woman there, but for a woman coming into that setting, there's often this this feeling that you know, even though it's the most basic kind of Jewish act to come and study and come and uh, daven and uh, to want to bring yourself to that, that somehow doing that as a woman, uh, you know, you expect to be perceived as a rebel. You know, you haven't sat in, uh, you know, Hezda Yeshiva for 10 years and you, you feel like you don't quite belong. And I, um, 
I, I, I was remembering a sort of moment that happened in the Bet Midrash, which was nothing to do with my uncle, but I, I, I think uh, points perhaps that, you know, some, something to do with where uh, Corin and, and he met. The, I remember, and I can't remember the comment that was made, but somebody walked into the Bet Midrash one day and made some kind of comment, on, a gender-related comment about the men and the women sitting there and you know, differences in how we're working or something. And Hanan uh, Benayau was working there on the Sephardi Sidur at the time. He's a, he's a Talmud Chacham. And he was, this comment that I can't remember irritated him. And he said, I don't see men and I don't see women. I see people learning. Um, and I think that, that that's always been what I've met at Koren. And I, I, I think that was, that characterized my uncle as well. I mean, he, there was something, I don't imagine that he particularly associated himself with the word feminist, because I think on some level he didn't see an issue. He saw, you know, brilliant women starting from his daughters and, and looking outward um, who were learning and who had a, something unique that they as people had to bring. And he would, uh, he would find us and just mandate us to go out and make our contribution. Uh, you know, men, women, whoever, whoever, you know, whoever we were and whatever the, the voice was that we brought because he, he saw such a, an importance in that diversity. There's like an urgency that he brought to every one of us to contribute whatever we had to contribute. So that was, that was how I came to Corin and how I came to uh, um, settle into Corin eventually. Um, and what was the second part of your question? In terms of the translation itself, as in how do you, I mean, what did you find how his views and like his hashkafa, his vision of the translations, how did that come through? Are you talking about the Chumash or the Sidur? I think, I mean, I mean, both really. I mean, but in terms of how, how that mm -hmm. came through in his translation, how he expressed that when you were working with him. Mm. I think the first and most significant thing about his translation was simply the decision to do it the way he did it. Because I think growing up, I had a very good uh, Jewish education. I was very lucky in my education. Um, but the ethos that was, that was there, I shouldn't say but, I think there was a great value to this, but the, the ethos was you cannot possibly approach the text unless you approach it in the Hebrew. You can't possibly, the Torah, the language of the Torah is so full of uh, layers of meaning and complexity and just subtlety and just the holiness of the words themselves that if you, if you, can't, if you can't approach it in the original language, then you've got no chance. I think that was, that was a message that we were given to encourage us to, to learn Hebrew, but I think that the reality is that, you know, the majority of diaspora Jews do need translations. We were, I think, as I grew up, when I grew up, we were not taught to respect translations. We were taught to, we were, we would, we would find fault with translations. That was like a game. 
um, to, to, to spot where the translation failed the text. Um, and to use the translation was, it was a crutch. It was something that you needed to, to help you out until you became a proper Jew and learned Hebrew. And I think that that's, that's damaging because, I mean, many people don't have the opportunity, don't have the, the inclination, um, don't have the ability to, to, to learn Hebrew on that level. I, I, Israelis born and raised are not raised in the language of the Tanakh. Um, and, and I think that my uncle, he's, he, we were raised on these translations that were full of these and nows, and he came along and it wasn't good enough for him. He, he felt that his flock deserved a language that was speaking their language, the language of intelligent, engaged English-speaking Jews, um, not Christian language, not archaic language, not yeshivish language that is constantly reminding you that, you know, this is foreign and you should really be reading it in the Hebrew because, you know, this can't possibly be expressed in good, beautiful English. Um, and he created this translation that people read and they can hear in their own voice. And I think that's extremely empowering to people. And I hear people time and again, I hear people saying, particularly of the, the machzorim, of yamim noraim, and I don't think it's by chance, people will say, this completely changed my Yom Kippur. I, the translation uplifted me. And they'll say, I devon sections of the service from the translation. And I think, think when we were growing up, people would not admit to that. The challenge of Yom Kippur was to just sit there and follow where the chazan was. And, you know, just to know where in the Hebrew text we were, just to say the words quick enough to get them out in time. You know, understanding it was a level above that. Um, and to, to actually speak it in your own voice was was... I think people couldn't admit it if they did it. I, I, I think so. I think that was this, such an important thing to give um, respect to the translation and respect to the reader, because it, 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 the, the other side of the same way of learning that stressed above all else, accessing the text in the Hebrew, was that the rhythm of that study was always read and translate, read and translate, read and translate, whether you're in a class or chavruta or just inside your own head. You read and translate, read and translate, read and translate. And again, I'm very grateful for that training because I certainly wouldn't be where I am now without it. Outside the, you know, I think everywhere in life that's an excellent training to look at every single word and examine every word as a word but you don't get the music when you read in that way your your rhythm is the rhythm of read and translate read and translate it's not the rhythm of the text people i don't think become aware of that even until they find the right translation or or those who are have the good fortune to be able to get to that level of the hebrew to read without mediation you know i 
I remember very strongly when that moment came for me, when I'd, I'd gone over that hump that you go over in a, in a foreign language and you, you're able to think in that language. When I remember the first evening when I sat down and I read Parshat Shavua and my mind wasn't actively translating it. I was, it was a revelation to me that this is, there is music here. There's music that you can't, you can't hear if you stop the symphony every two bars to examine it. And I think he created a translation which had enough dignity as a text to allow people just to read it as a text because you don't, you're allowed to just read a translation. And when you just read a translation, you can, um, you can feel the structure of the text, not just this word, not just look up this word, look up that word, but, but read the poem, read the story with all the, the, uh, the tension and the, and the, the perspectives of the characters that are developing as you read. You do get that. You really do get that. Um, that was one of the things we wanted to do together. And I think it's been hugely successful. I'm sorry, Joseph, yeah. I interrupted yeah. yeah, absolutely. But the, yeah. The, but the tragedy, just, the tragedy is that, you know, um, we went to press last week with the Tanakh. It's so sad. You know, we went to press and it'll be out in four months or something and you won't see it. But that is a massive legacy. Mm -hmm. I, well, I, I want to, before you interrupt, Alex, I want to interrupt. Uh, as an, I'd like to, as an educator, add to uh, ever, Jessica, everything you said so beautifully resonated. But there's, there's something, as an educator, a translation is a parish, is a commentary. There's no question about that. And, and the only other translation that we had access to as educators, modern translation, that did not reflect the Hashkafah that we wanted to educate. And, and, and that was frustrating. And to, to have Rabbi Sachs infuse his Hashkafah, our Hashkafah, into the translation was massive, is massive for us. And the Tanakh, I'm so excited for it to, to be available on the market with that, because, you know, that was just, uh, I can't begin to uh, to tell you what that, what that means, because, uh, you know, I, I spend my entire time explaining to students that the minute you translate something, it, it's a parish and, and there's an agenda. And this is what this, you know, this parish is trying to achieve. And, and it doesn't always reflect what I want to achieve as an educator. I also want to tell a quick anecdote. You talked about, you didn't use the word imposter syndrome, but you, I, I could hear it. And I'm, I'm the king of imposter syndrome. Um, in that Bet Midrash, where I was surrounded by men and women who were scholars, and I didn't belong there, but I sat there for three years. Um, when we translated that for the children's Siddur, so I, I, I had the job of massacring Rabbi Sachs's translation of the Siddur, because I felt very strongly it needed to be adapted for that age. So I did it, and it was a little bit traumatic. Um, I, I told him about it, and he was obviously very grateful. There was a moment, Matthew, I don't know if you remember, where you pushed back a little bit, where for Rabbi Sachs, it was important to, to translate Yudke Vavke with the word Lord. Mm -hmm. That was that was his, his translation. And I, I was like, Lord, that doesn't speak to, to an eight-year-old. I need to translate that as Hashem, a, a, a warmer term that a child can relate to. And Matthew, you, you questioned me and said, it, because you were correctly protecting the consistency and integrity of the Korean brand. So I decided I was going to reach out to Rabbi Sachs to make sure he was okay with it. And he gracefully and very quickly 
uh, said that that was that would be fine. So that was a really important moment for me in in, in my journey with that sort of. I mean, I, just, if, now it's my turn to interrupt, um, and I would encourage. I just. So Jessica, I, I would encourage all of our listeners to to rewind and and listen again to sort of what, what you are saying about you know how you came to to just be involved in the translation projects, both the Sador and the Khumash. and just I think I've never heard a better expression of of the hashkafa and the the um, the value placed on the way the translation tra- translations have been done. Um, and how that, you know, reflects not just Rabbi Sachs's thinking, but just our general, the modern orthodox, the, the centrist orthodox, um, and just the human side to the tefillah and to the Tanakh. I don't think I've ever heard it sort of explained so eloquently. So I would encourage everyone to re- just rewind and listen to that again. Um, but if I could pivot to, to back to Matthew and to, to Rabbi Weinreb, Rab Jessica, you mentioned how, you know, Rabbi Sachs would occasionally make some rabbinic tweaks uh, to your suggestions and to your translations. Um, to, to Matthew and to Rav Weinreb, I, if you could sort of just share some insight um, to sort of how that uh, ideology, um, you know, what what are the features, I suppose, the general features of the translation that I think, that, that you think reflect um, ideologically what we're trying to do. Like I, I know, for example, in the Siddur, um, names the, the names of the patriarchs are transliterated. They're not translated. It's the the Jewish name, the the authentic name, I suppose, um, and that is also true in, in the Tanakh. But what other things are there that you know hashkafically um, really sort of uh, act as as touchstones um, for you know uh, a hashkafa in the in the in the Sidurim and in in the Chumash uh, and the Tanakh? Okay, the the. Um... <laughs> In the work, the little bit of work that I did together with Jessica on her uncle's translation of the Chumash. So one of us translators, I too was a translator, not of the Chumash, but other books of the Tanakh. But each translator went through a review by several scholars, um, academic uh, experts, uh, experts in the English language, um, rabbinic, uh, hashkafic uh, uh, perspectives, etc. Uh, and uh, many times when Jessica was sitting and reviewing, and I guess that was the final review, uh, we had to deal with, well, what are we going to do with these other people's comments? Because, you know, that they have a point of view and, and there's something correct about it. Maybe we should abandon, you know, your uncle's... Uh, translation and 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 uh, use one of theirs whenever that came up i kept thinking to myself no this is rabbi sax's translation <laughs> i mean just from the marketing perspective people are purchasing this translation because they want to hear what rabbi sax had to say uh especially the fact that as we now see unfortunately tragically uh this translation was among the last things that he uh, worked on uh, it was his last word in effect uh, so very often we would take, you know, is this something that he just wrote kind of just to translate? Or was he sending some type of a hashkafic, philosophic, or poetic message in his choice of words? Uh, and therefore we should prefer what he said, even though in some ways, of course, the scholars were not off base. They had a point too. Uh, I think that we, we, we 
generally ruled in favor of we have to let Rabbi Sachs uh, speak his word. Uh, and often it, it would uh, reflect uh, hashkafic issues, as you put it, sometimes very subtle ones. Uh, many times in translations, especially in the translation that Koran did for the Tanakh, uh, we tried to ground our translations in traditional commentaries, in traditional mafarsha. Uh, and uh, sometimes we could, sometimes we couldn't, sometimes we intentionally did not, for various reasons. But generally, my own hang-up was, okay, if we can't see it, find it in Rashi or Ramban or Ibn Ezra, then let's look, maybe we can find some fully credentialed uh, Parshan who, uh, who Rabbi Sachs is, is drawing from. And I was struck several times uh, by the fact that he would translate something in a way which was clearly different from, let's say, Rashi or Ramban. Uh, and obviously he was aware of uh, how Rashi and Ramban would have translated it if they were translating into English. But he chose a different approach. But inevitably, if I just did a little bit of research, I would find that he was basing his translation on that research. For example, in the Torah Chaim Mosadarov Cook edition of Chumash, they have the Mufarish, they have a brief uh, translation of the Arabic translation of Rabbi Sadja Gaon on, on Chumash. And obviously, Rabbi Sadja Gaon was uh, before Rashi and Ramban, etc., and often has ideas, concepts, and sometimes they are theological, sometimes they're details of one sort or another, sometimes even uh, details about botany or, or fauna in the, in the Chumash. Um, but it's, it, I would bet, I, I can't ask him, that, that he consulted that parish and often would prefer that parish for various reasons. In that particular edition, since it's a translation from the Arabic, the uh, publishers inserted uh, footnotes which are very, very helpful. And several times, I think we spotted, I think Jessica will remember a couple of occasions, when there's no question that he read that footnote, right? And he used that to kind of ground his translation. And I expect when the public sees and begins to study the translation of the Chumash, as people have found in his translation of the Siddur and other translations and his writings, sometimes you say you're startled, even a very educated, Jewishly educated person will be startled. This sounds very original, maybe even too original. <laughs> and, and do a little homework and you'll see that he did his homework and it's grounded in, in, in some traditional source, maybe not the usual source, but one that he felt was closer to the text, more likely closer to the reader, the reader that he was addressing, closer to his audience. So that he is not making changes just to please the audience. He's introducing the fact that there are so many layers, traditional, perfectly uh, acceptable by any hashkafa um, that he, he wanted to bring to the attention of people. When you're reading this, realize that, you know, Rashi had an approach, Ramban has that approach, but there are other approaches that I want you to see. Even though I'm not making it explicit, there's no parentheses or footnote that says, I got this from Rasad uh, but the reader can be assured that it's grounded, uh, very meticulously grounded in, in the traditional sources, uh, but 
in a wider range of traditional sources than the average student of Chumash is familiar with. I'd like to make um, two points, if I may. Um, first, just to one thing you said, Rabbi Weinreb, you know, this was his last um, hurrah. I'm happy to say, happy, that's the wrong word. I, I am relieved to say that um, his Chumash commentary um, was very extensive. He worked on it very hard, and there's a huge amount of material that's in the Chumash commentary that we are going to be putting together. It'll be a couple of years, but it'll be a... Uh, I mean, I've read I've read most of what he's written, and it's... It's wonderful. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit about legacy, just for if I may. Um, you know, I, I listened to the podcast by uh, Don, Daniel Reinhardt, um, which is very good. He, he was interviewed by Jeff Sachs, no relation. Um, and, um, you know, Daniel, he, you know, he, someone like Daniel or so many other people are qualified to speak upon about his intellectual legacy. Uh, I am not one who is capable of that. Um, but I would like to put out something that that actually came from you, Rabbi Weinreb, 10 years ago. Um, a, a bit of a story, Alex, feel free to cut it. Um, about, about 10 years ago, my, um, my late mother-in-law passed away. Um, my parents died many years ago. Uh, Renee's father died many years ago, and she was the last of the of that of that generation. And coincidentally, I remember uh, Rabbi and uh, Mrs. Weiner happened to be the first people we had over for Friday night um, after Shloshim. Um, and you said something, Rabbi Weiner. You know, we we were talking about it, and Rabbi Weiner made a comment, and you'll say it better than me. It's like their 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 position what our parents had to do um was to protect us from the uh, angel of death and now that they're gone our job is to protect our children from the angel of death did you remember that yes and it was it was really um for um we've had a we've had a kind of an awful year in addition to 2020 being this disastrous year for so many other reasons, you know, earlier this year, uh, Rob Steinseltz passed away. Um, three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, Rob Sachs passed away. Um, a number of years ago, Rabbi Lamb and Rob Amital and Rob Lichtenstein passed away. We're feeling very beaten. We're feeling very, we're feeling very, very exposed and very fragile. Um, but what I can say is, certainly in the case whom I knew better, Rabbi Steinsatz and Rabbi Sachs, in a way they're leaving us the tools to carry on. Certainly, Rabbi, Stein, Rabbi Steinsatz, you know, um, as cantankerous as he was, he was beautifully cantankerous and a real iconoclast. And, you know, he gave us, he gave this generation the tools to think critically and approach Talmud and other and other texts, um, not just to do the same old, same old, but very much to do 
you know, to always question, to always contextualize, to always simplify. It was what Rabbi Steinsaltz left was wonderful. What Rabbi Sachs left, um, a little more subtle. And I, I guess it's, I guess it's two things. Um, at least to me, I mean, if I have, if I ever said I had a Rebbe, it would be him. Um, you know, number one, he he got and understood the not the tension, but the complementary uh, universalism of Judaism and the particularism of Judaism. You know, um, that certain, you know, uh, that all the Gentiles will come to Jerusalem and the universal aspect of Shavuot or, uh, or um, the um, you know, the message to all men because God created all men and the special obligations of the Jews. Um, you know, I don't think any other religion says, you know, they're, the, the infidels are going to get to heaven. That doesn't happen in Judaism. We just have a harder time getting to Olam Abba, uh, um, Olam Hazem. Um, and that, that complementariness of the, of the universal, universalism and the particularism of, of Judaism, I think, resonated very, very strongly with me and I think many others. The other thing I think that he left us was that there is a right, there is a, a hugely strong sense of morality. And that morality just doesn't happen out of natural law. It happens because it's God-given. It's revealed. Um, and you can't have a sense of morality without that strong belief. Otherwise, it becomes, um, what's the word, um, relativist. Um, so I feel like Rabbi Sachs left us these very strong messages of engaging with the outer world, but feeling very comfortable in our own internal Judaism, and that there is a right, there is a wrong, and it's a very moral, you know, it's not just a, it's okay, tatale, whatever you say is, is fine, tatale, it's okay, tatale, whatever's good. It, it's, it's, there really is a sense of right and wrong, and we have to cherish that. And I think that's, if anything, that's what I think he left us. And if we choose to partake of that, I think we'll be the, all the better for it. Jessica, you wanted to? Yes, I wanted to follow something on from what Rabbi Weinreb said. So uh, perhaps in a different order. Um, I, it was very lovely for me to hear the story that Rabbi Weinreb told about that long conversation walking in the night because I, I it was one of the wonderful things about this work for me was was that uh, work that I did with you Rabbi Weinreb it was a tremendous honor for me and it was um, it, it, it that began because when I asked my uncle you know my my I was doing some editing on his translation and I was mediating some of the comments that another editor had made. A scholar had gone through and made some comments on his translation and I had to uh, integrate those. Um, and I'd seen from one of the drafts that they'd worked on together that he had pretty much in every case accepted the editor's comments without without any kind of protest. I know as a translator that it's quite difficult to be edited, but he 
really there was no sense of ego in it he was um you know he 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 accepted every kind of comment except in certain cases and those were the cases that were where it was really important to him and though and i i had to take over at some stage some of that integrating work and I asked him what to do if I wasn't sure in general of what to do if we weren't sure and he said go to Rabbi Weinreb ask him and he put complete faith in Rabbi Weinreb and it was it, so it's it, it's you know I could sense that friendship there so it was lovely to hear you know a story of that friendship from your side um, and I wanted to to add to what you said Rabbi Weinreb that where those where the, those those brave decisions that he made, I think what the the line that went through them was um, a humane reading. I think that was in most cases that was that was his concern. He wanted to give a humane reading to the text, and I I, I think he. I mean, I I my experience as a translator is that it's a kind of it's like being a shadchan because you, you have to get to know the text and you have to get to know the reader and you know that they're made for each other and you know that they, they belong to each other and your job is to show them. Your job is to, is to um, get through to the text and bring out the, the, the aspect of the text that will make that connection between the two. And it's a... It's a you know, it's a, it's a labor of love for the text and a labor of love for the reader. And I think, I am sure he wouldn't say it in those words. It was, um, but I I could see that. I I think that's what that he he experienced it in a similar way. That he was that the translation. You know, he translated as as a as a leader as a rabbi, and he was. It was. Um, it it was expressing his love for the text where he loved you know the the what he found in the text that was his and and his love for for the reader for all all of us all the potential readers um and that he was he was bridging them he was he was trying to make that connection and i i think that was the line that you know all those points that we discussed that that were um say very individual to his translation that that I think that's what was going on Matthew mentioned before in terms of Rabbi Sachs's legacy um, and Daniel in terms of passing on um, Rabbi Sachs's Torah to the next generation you know how how do you think we can do that how can we continue his Torah to future generations so um, I want to say um, personally I, I fell in love with him as, as an author, his books, his ideas, um, and his oratory skills and presentations that were mind-blowing and inspiring were just a bonus for me. Uh, people connected him in lots of different ways. What, what I've been blown away with since his, his passing is the number of people that have, have, have told these, these wonderful stories of him as a human, as a mensch, um, like the story that Jessica um told but Jessica though we can say that that's because you were his niece but there are so many stories just like that I experienced I, I mean I remember in Corin hearing with deep envy 
people who had babies and he and got a phone call from him people that didn't expect that and and you know and uh or, or, or lost a parent and he would call them so these stories for me show show um that he wasn't this academic or or, or, or even rabbinic scholar in, in an ivory tower and, and and remaining there safe and still changing the jewish world with his ideas and his books which would have been enough for me he was much more than that so five years ago he put out this message through his team on Facebook, Jewish educators of the world, I'm here to help you. Reach out to us and tell me, tell us what, what I can do to help you in your, in your holy work. Um, and for me, this was like, you know, remember, I was already, I was already chassid. But here, I, here he was seeing me as an educator and saying, I, I want to help you. So, so that was my, my, my mind was exploding with ideas. And I reached out, I happened to be lucky enough to, to, um, to know his team, to know Dan and Joanna in the office. So I reached out and I said, I've got ideas. <laughs> this is what I think I can do for you to make him really accessible to educators. And, 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 and from that conversation came this uh, privilege uh, relationship that I've had where I've, I've been charged with developing some, some materials based on his ideas that, that are um, uh, usable and approachable and accessible for the, ne for the next generation, for kids and for families, which was of such a primary uh, importance to him. He wasn't just interested in writing books. He wanted to... He, w he, he was very proud that during his tenure as chief rabbi, the number of Jewish, uh, of, of, of children in Jewish schools in England skyrocketed, triple, I think. He was very proud yeah, of that. Yeah. So the first project was the 10 paths curriculum that we wrote based on his thought. Uh, and then um, and then Covenant Conversation Family Edition, two rounds of, of, of that uh, for the, on the Pasha. And then and then we, we're now in the middle. And, and thank God we, we'll, 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 um, we'll complete it because it's based on already existing material. Uh, uh, Ceremony and Celebration, we called it after his book that he that he wrote uh, with Corin, with Magid, um, on the Chagim. Um, and I'm hoping that there'll be future projects. I've got many, many more ideas, Dan and Joanna, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and, and this is, you know, uh, and I know that it's important also to his family as well, um, that his ideas continue and not just for, for people that, 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 you know, lap up his books um, like, like me, like us, but, but for, for the children and families as well. I'd like to say something else about his legacy. Um, which goes beyond goes beyond translation, beyond education, and which is something more uh, essential, existential uh, to all human beings. Uh, and if I recall correctly, uh, he planted the seed of this idea in my head and how important it was for him during that famous walk walk on uh, Bournemouth. Um, He's, we spoke a lot about leadership, himself in a leadership position, and uh, myself and others in leadership positions. And he emphasized that, that leaders have to be very practical. You know, they can't get too intellectual, too philosophical, uh, too hung up on details. We have to send the message to people that there's action that can be done and must be done. We must act, 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 act. Um, he got some of that from the Babaji Rebbe, but he also got that from so many other um, sources, again, secular and sacred, that he went back to. 
Um, as some of you know, I, I live in three or four different places. So my books are scattered literally everywhere between Yerushalayim and Lahavdil, Muncie. And um, I might have to strike that <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> that Lahavdil is carrying a long way. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm still not clear which way, which direction is that Lahavdil going? <laughs> that's, you know, okay, that's something that's a discussion in itself, but not very relevant here. Um, but the several books that I own uh, from Rabbi Sachs are all in my library in Yerushalayim, in my in my apartment there. Uh, the one book that I happen to have with me is the one book that he autographed for me. I don't know when and where. It's not dated, but it has a, to me, obviously, and this doesn't have to be public, but it, I just cherish it and pulled it off the shelf when I learned about his death and just kept it on my desk for the past few weeks. Rabbi Tzvi Hirshwan, Reb Shalita, okay, uh, in profound admiration. Jonathan Sachs. He must have written that compliment to, I don't know, <laughs> dozens if not hundreds of people. But I choose to, to just, um, I'm so proud of it and it makes me feel so warm whenever I turn to it. I don't remember when when this happened, when he gave me, when he gave me the book, I just signed the book. But I, I have a little piece of paper in this quote. Uh, this is his words. Uh, somehow they've preserved the lineaments of hope. He's speaking about Holocaust survivors. Nowhere do I find more clearly than these survivors the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is the belief that things are going to get better. Hope is the belief that we can make things better. He said, look at all the drashot, the sermons, etc., that have been written by and then several rabbis, prominent rabbis, Gedola Yisroel, various uh, ends of the spectrum. They're optimists. They preach, don't give up hope. Things will get better. Things will get better. But a true leader is someone who believes that we can make things better. And that's hope, not optimism. And, and that lesson is so, so important. People don't speak about hope. I remember I added to his uh, remarks then, this was in a subsequent conversation some years after Bournemouth, that uh, the Jewish people, to my knowledge, it's our anthem, is the only anthem in the entire world of national anthems that doesn't speak of war, doesn't speak of kings, but speaks of hope. And it's called hope, tikva ha-tikva. Rabbi Weinweb, that quote was read today in the Knesset by really? Chavek Knesset Michal Kotlevench. Wow. They, they convened a, a, a symposium on, on Israel advocacy and on Thanks. diaspora Israel relations. And with tears in her eyes, she read that quote today in the Knesset. So, so I want to something then, you know, that, that, that message at those two sentences, optimism versus hope and hope we can make things better. That, that, that to me, the essence of his teachings, who else would dare write a book in today's sugar times, but how to heal a fractured world, a fractured world, only someone who really believes that it can be healed, that something can be done about it. And, 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 and that, that, that quote is just precious, just precious.
And to me, to me, that's his essence. Uh, it's beyond scholarship, beyond everything else. He exemplified hope. He exemplified hope, even in the the the, the little snippet from the inf- the interview we had, really shortly, a few months before his death, with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. You see the hope of a dying man. Obviously, now looking back, this was just a few months ago. He knew the situation he was in, and he, he began that particular bit on the video with Biatchav Kidruchi, the God I, I I trust my soul to you. And and this was it this was a, his his the feelings in his dying weeks, uh the, the hopefulness that he had. Uh and that's to me is, is the essence of the person, of this person and the essence of what of the legacy that he leaves with us within which we can deal with, as Matthew put it, to quoting me, uh, the Malacham of it. I think on that, if if I can do something a little out of character for not just myself but for the podcast, you know, Ari and I, we always try and take a, a bit of a back seat uh, when we record these. But um, you know, Ari and I were very very fortunate um, before Hashanah to to be given um, a little bit of time with Rabbi Sachs for the podcast. Um, it would end up being one of again one of the final interviews that he would give before he stepped back from his uh, you know, his public work. And uh, in a short sort of excerpt that Arya shared on, on his social media and Karen social media shared it as well after he passed away. Um, what Rambi you said, you know, you could hear the you could hear the hope of of a, of a dying man. Where Rabbi Sachs said to us then, you know, that his message for twenty twenty, Arya asked him, you know, we know that this year is going to be difficult. Um, at that time, we didn't know that he was sick. Um, but you know, with everything else that had happened, Arya said, you know, we know that twenty twenty is going to be a difficult year. That five seven eight one is going to be very different and what uh you know w- what's the message what's the the message of hope that he could give us and you know he said to to find the what was it to find the moment Ari will correct me if i say it wrong uh but to you know, find the moments of darkness and turn them into moments of joy um and after he passed away i was i was particularly touched you know i had sitting we've been working from home for months and months um, and I had next to me on the, the table next to my computer that the, I'd just been given my copy of uh, his the last public book. Uh, sorry, the last published book he published, uh, Judaism's Life Changing Ideas. Um, and I sort of just flicked open and, and it fell open to the, the final passage on the Zat Habracha, um, where he, he says that, you know, uh, again, if you'll permit me to read, um, that Moses was mortal, that the greatest leader who ever lived did not see his mission completed that even he was capable of making a mistake is the most profound gift God could give, could give each of us. Hence, the three great li- the three great life-changing ideas with which the Torah ends. We are mortal, therefore we make every day count. We are fallible, therefore learn to grow from each mistake. We will not complete the journey, therefore inspire others to continue what we began. It's, I, I found, you know, it was incredibly inspiring. I um, mean, you know, the, the, the Tanakh had not gone to press uh, when Rabbi Sachs passed away. It's only just gone, gone to, the, to the printer and, and will be available soon that Rabbi Sachs achieved so much but still didn't see his, his mission complete. And I think each of us has touched on how Rabbi Sachs was influenced and inspired by so many different things, uh, from you know social current events to secular literature to, to music. Um, again, just, just before he passed away, he collaborated with, with uh, singer Yisha Reba, um, providing you know, Divrei Torah and, and uh, words of inspiration on, on his on the songs of uh, his latest album um, and one of his latest songs a song called Arachayim 
where the, the chorus goes, and I'm suddenly aware that I'm in the presence of, of esteemed scholars and, and translators, so I apologise for the butchery I'm about to do. Um, but the, the, in the chorus um, of the song, uh, it says, uh, Talking about the Torah, um, that... You know the, the the purpose of Torah that the purpose of Torah is to find the truth on all sides in every of the seventy faces of the Torah, all the shivim panim of the Torah, um, and that it's that the Torah is the way and the Torah is uh, is happiness. Um, I think is something that perfectly encapsulates certainly my understanding of Rabbi Sachs and and his uh, his teaching, his messages, and hearing from uh, our esteemed guests uh, over the last hour or, or more. It's certainly something that you know I, I feel more uh, confident in saying that that is Rabbi Sachs' legacy. Um, certainly for me, and I'm, I'm sure for for many many others. Um, so with that, I'd like to uh, thank you all for joining us um, to do, you know, what what we could to try and memorialize Rabbi Sachs, to try and process ourselves and and for other people uh, the loss that we're all still feeling. Um, and so thank you all for joining us. Um, there's so much more that we could discuss with all of you. Um, about Rabbi Sachs, about the different works that you've all been involved in yourselves and with him. Um, but hopefully this provides some comfort to his family. Uh, Jessica, I hope you pass that on to, to your, your broader family, um, to his students, to his colleagues, his friends, his peers, and, and to all, uh, all people, Jewish or Gentile, um, to process the loss that I think we're all feeling. So, so thank you all.